You've made it to the Paul List, a daily comics analysis project. I'm Tuply on Twitter at T-W-O-P-L-A-I or Tuply at gmail.com. And you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. Um, this is a daily comics analysis podcast. Um, and every day we take something from the varied world of comics and we bring a academic, critical, analytical take. Uh, and we, um, we immerse ourselves in this vibrant medium. That's what we're about. Um, lightweight spoiler warning. Sometimes we um, get into the details of a book. And today we're going to be talking about Abnett and Colbert's Wilds and the Enemy Within trade paperback from Boom Studios. Um, a bit of programming notes. First off, sorry for the embarrassingly bad sound quality sometimes. I'm still learning how to use the uh, microphone setup. And there's occasions when I'm whispering into the mic because it's 11 p.m. and my family's asleep. And uh, that's why part of the reason why I come out kind of muffled in some places. Um, I'm just uh, right up against that microphone. And that's really not how they're supposed to work. So apologies for that. Um, additionally, I just want to also let you know about a little bit of a shift in the way that we do this project. Um, as I've said, this is kind of a, a, a bit of a research project for me. I've called it something between a critic's poll list and involving syllabus for a, a comics studies course or something like that, and, um, and, and a bit of a research project for me. And uh, so a few announcements about where this is going, um, especially if you've been a follower, a listener of the show, I thank you. I hope that um, I can hear from you, and I hope that you'll reach out to me on Twitter or email or something like that um, and let people know about the show, rate and view, review on iTunes. Um, but um, what um, I'm going to be doing is that um, I'm going to be changing some of the schedule. Uh, we have sort of a daily schedule here. Um, it's tough to do a daily podcast. You know, I do make some notes. I try to be well prepared. Maybe it'd be better if I did this once a week or once a couple of times a week with a little bit more preparation, a little bit more rehearsal, a little bit more polish. Um, instead, I just try to churn this out every day within a limited time frame. And, um, and so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm toying with the schedule a little bit. And what we do is uh, we do a Monday Marvel, which is an issue of a Marvel comic, and then a Saturday Super Friend, an issue of a DC comic. That's going to remain. Um, on Tuesdays, we do the Tuesday Trade Paperback, and we're on a bit of a catch-up schedule. So there's going to be two episodes today, and the first one today is covering for the Tuesday Trade Paperback. And that's when we cover a um, an arc or a, a, a miniseries from um, Image, Dark Horse, Valiant, uh, uh, boom, uh, you know, Titan publishers like that. Um, and then, uh, on Wednesday, we call it the Wednesday wide world of comics. When I read something from sort of the broader world of comics, be it comics from another country in translation or web comics or newspaper comics, or something like that. Um, we have had in the past the, a schedule where on Sundays I do something called the Sunday scholar, where I take a work from the, the, um, the interdisciplinary field of comics studies, and I talk about that. But I realize that what I'm trying to do, I think, is apply various insights from comics studies and also just sort of academic understandings of everything from literature to art and aesthetics to, to um, language and linguistics. And I'm trying to apply it um, to, to comics all the time. So instead of having a Sunday Scholar, my intent is that every episode, or at least most episodes, you know, the, the work that we look at would be paired with some sort of theoretical or, um, or let's say, uh, analytical approach that's learned from um, the world of, 
either comic studies or, or something, you know, related, adjacent. Um, or sometimes what I'll try to do is bring to bear the things that I learned from reading, um, so, you know, some of the kinds of works about comics that you might find in a, a pub from a publisher like Two Morrows or a book that's written for people who are um, studying to become cartoonists. Um, yesterday, for instance, I, um, I talked about Jesse Hamm and uh, his, his Patreon site where he writes essays about um, comics art and applied it to analyzing the work of Chris Somney in Black Widow number five. Um, check that out if you haven't heard that. And so that's going to be my intent. And so rather than having a Sunday episode specifically um, dedicated to scholarship, I'm going to try to interweave you know, comic scholarship and comic study into every single episode. And so instead, what I want to do is on Sunday, I want to focus on small press comics. So it'll be our Sunday small press where we'll talk about indie comics, alternative comics, things like that. Um, some of that, you know, I just, I just find on the, on, on the internet. Some of that I, I find in previews, catalogs. Some of that I find when I'm just kind of digging around in my local comic shop, you know, shout out to The Escapist in Berkeley, shout out to Fantastic in Berkeley, shout out to other <laughs> local comic shop here in the Bay Area. But when I'm rooting around in those piles of the, uh, you know, sort of indie kind of comics, and, uh, and that'll be what Sunday is devoted to. Now, I think the reason actually for all of this shift is because on Friday, I used to have what I called the Friday Find, and that was the day where I was likely to talk about indie comics and stuff like that. What I want to do, though, is I want to devote a day to, um, I think, to the Im just increasingly important um, field of, of, of the graphic novel for all ages. Um, and so I'm going to call it the Friday Family Graphic Novel. And the reason why that's important to me is because I am actually primarily an educator. I'm an English teacher. I'm a literacy researcher. And, um, and the, the notion that, um, you know, I think... You hear so many reports that um, even though comics aren't just for kids anymore, even though we know that it's not uh, a kid's medium, um, it's also a kid's medium. And it's a medium where um, the, the kinds of the, the kind of range, the kind of uh, diversity of works that are available, the kinds of um, stories that are being told and the kinds of representation that are there for kids in comics is just um, exploding. And you look at the comics bestseller lists and they're totally populated by books like um, the works of Raina Telgemeier, <laughs> which utterly dominate the co comics and graphic novels um, lists or um, works by others. And um, tonight, uh, the, ex the sort of catch-up episode that we're going to do is going to be about um, Little Robot by Ben Hatke, by, uh, published by First Second, which won an Eisner. I'm also going to talk about my Eisner picks and uh, where I got those wrong and where I got those right. So come back for that episode. Um, but uh, you know, books like Little Robot. And I have the privilege of not only being an, uh, an English teacher, an educator, someone who, who's concerned about um, uh, kids and adolescents and their reading development and their imagina uh, imaginative and social development. I'm also privileged to be the father of an eager comics reader. And uh, we read together every day. We just did, in fact. Um, and so it's, um, it's something that I care a lot about, um, and at this point, I just really want to give a shout out to um, the Comics Alternative, which is another podcast that I've mentioned frequently. And every month, um, Gwen uh, Tarbox and Andy Wolverton, who are two scholars uh, as well, uh, and uh, and you know deeply knowledgeable about comics, um, do a young readers episode of the Comics Alternative podcast. And if you've never listened to that, even if you are not a young reader, in fact, it's 
definitely targeted more towards maybe parents, educators, librarians, that sort of thing. Um, if Even if you're not a young reader, but you care about young readers, I think you should definitely look at, uh, listen to, 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 um, to the Young Readers podcast. And then let me just take a second to say, part of why I actually am fond of the label All Ages is because I think that if, um, if you are not a, ch- uh, a child <laughs> or an adolescent, or, or even if you aren't an educator or a parent, if you dismiss comics that seem to be targeted and geared towards kids, I think that um, you're missing out. Um, it's it's kind of like somebody who um, watches movies but just won't watch a Pixar movie because they think that those are for kids. Um, they, uh, they, they're just good. They're just good comics. Uh, <laughs> a lot of them are, um, you know, I mean, you have your good and your bad, for sure. But um, the, very, the very best of them, I think, are right up there with your... Um, Alan Moore or your Neil Gaiman or whatever. And so I really, personally, that's that's my point of view. So um, I really think that, um, uh, you know, for many of us adults, we come to it by way of thinking about what we can read and consume with our kids um, or with our students or, or our charges or whatever. But um, I think that we ought to broaden our thinking about that. Okay. Um, that's a lot of not the stuff that's not about Wilds and the Enemy Within. So let me turn to that at this point. Um, and, uh, and maybe in the next episode, I'll add a few more of the programming notes that I was going to mention about the future of this, of this show. Okay. So wild enemy, the enemy with, uh, sorry, wild's end, the enemy within is a boom comic. It actually is coming out, uh, today in uh, trade paperback form, but it's actually collecting a six issue run that, um, I think ended in March or April, um, something like a few months back. And so I read it as it came out in individual issues. And so that's kind of where I'm talking from when I talk about wild's end, but I'm really excited for it to come out and trade the first, um, volume of this series wild's end, um, came out, uh, I think a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, but, um, but that was a, a, a really enjoyable series. Um, I want, I'm going to give a lot of shout outs because my analysis is going to have to be narrow for me to stick within my time limit. So I'm going to be talking about a specific aspect of the series, namely the dialogue and sort of what the dialogue, um, does. Um, but, um, but, uh, there's a lot about this series, I think, uh, that's worth looking into. I'm going to point you right now to a few other places. If you haven't read Wild's End, uh, I would encourage you to pick it up and read it. Um, maybe even encourage you to pick it up and read it before you listen to this. Although, yeah, I think I'm going to end up spoiling a major plot point. So I think it's probably good for you at this point to listen to my uh, hearty endorsement and recommendation of the book. Pick it up, um, you know, in trade format or digitally, or even if you want to, um, uh, you know, root, root through the boxes and find the individual issues. I encourage you to do that. Um, the book is great. Um, and it is, uh, maybe before I give the official spoiler warning and have you shut it off, I'll tell you a little bit what the book is about, but, uh, you'll want to start with Wild's End Volume 1. Um, it is the kind of series that, you know, you can actually understand this Volume 2 without having read the first one, but you definitely won't appreciate it as much. Um, in the first volume, you have sort of, um, let's see, uh, okay, so, one of the resources I'll point you to is a review written by Nick Bridwell on the Comics Alternative blog, which, of course, um, you know, full disclosure, I'm the editor of that blog, although I was not yet the editor when 
this piece was written. And Nick Bridwell is one of the critics and uh, reviewers on the blog. And he uh, wrote a review of Wild's End um, and The New Dead Wardians, which was actually a prior collaboration of Dan Abnett, a longtime comics writer, written a ton of different stuff. Um, I first got to know him from his Guardians of the Galaxy run. Um, and um, INJ Colbert, whose uh, style is just really fantastic in this book. Um, it is an anthropomorphic... Um, animals <laughs> i don't know if that's a tautology uh, it's an a- anthropomorphic uh characters story set in sort of the country the british countryside the english countryside and there's a small town and they encounter aliens um and nick bridwell calls it a um a wind wind, wind in the willows meets War of the Worlds, uh, and that's a very appropriate elevator pitch version of what this story is, because you have these animals, um, rep, you know, representing or, or being these very um, lively characters, um, these very um, carefully drawn characters, and uh, and they're very interesting. The interactions between them, the the sort of minor spats and the jealousies and bitternesses, and the uh, you know the sort of uh, in the community, really, that they are, um, and then they have an alien invasion, uh, and then and these alien roboty things—that's probably not the word—come and zap people, and and they have to uh, survive, and some do and some don't. Um, it's great. It's a really fun series. Um, volume two, uh, you know, the 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 first volume ends, but you know that that the excitement is not over. Volume two uh, takes it in a very interesting direction, I think, um, and so it's definitely worth checking out. And if you don't uh, have the haven't read the book at this point, I encourage you to stop the podcast. You can definitely join me later uh, for the other episodes uh, for for the non spoilery episodes and stuff like that. But I encourage you to go pick it up right now and read it. Okay. We've been sufficiently warned. All right. So I'm going to point to a couple other places where there's some really good discussion about it. Um, Bidwell's review on the Comics Alternative blog. You can sort of go to comicsalternative.com and and search for that. Um, You can also look at an essay, a couple of essays, actually, a couple of pieces by somebody named David Harper. He had a website and a podcast called Sketched, S-K-T-C-H-D. Mr. Harper was a long-form columnist columnist at uh, Multiversity for a very long time. And um, I love his pieces. He's a, he lives in Alaska, um, a, a really smart guy. And I think that he was the, he's the kind of person who would write pieces. And I would think as soon as I saw him, I'd say, dang, that's exactly what I was thinking. And he got to writing. He, he sat down and wrote the column before I could, could get to it. Um, that's funny that I should say that. And then I should say he's a very smart guy, basically saying he, he uh, thinks like me. That's what makes him smart. Um, good, good. Good work, Paul. Um, but anyway, uh, David is um, very, very smart, uh, and I appreciate his takes on comics. And um, Sketched is a great site. Um, I think he began a break or an end or a hiatus from that site, unfortunately, but all of the back catalog of his writing is really worth looking at, especially when topics come up that um, that interest you. And so he has a review of um, the second volume of Wild's End when it ended in single issue form around, I think, again, the end of March, I think. So look at Sketched, check out David Harper's overall sort of comprehensive review. It's really great. He also links there to an interview he did with the artist, INJ Colbert, learning and talking about his art and his process that's definitely worth um, looking at. Um, so 
those are at least a couple of the places where I think you can um, learn more, uh, get more analysis of um, Wilds and the enemy within, uh, and the first and the first uh, series. Um, the the last place that I'll turn to for as a lead into what I'm interested in in the book. Um, actually, I'm interested in a lot of things in the book. Um, but if you've never looked at the website tvtropes.org, um, I always kind of refer um, uh, my high school and undergraduate students who are interested in the notion of what a trope is um, to to that site because it's just so interesting if you are interested in storytelling and the ways that characters i mean you can call them tropes you can think of them as archetypes you can um you know whatever the the some outline of certain kinds of characters that show up repeatedly in different stories um and it just kind of goes to show something about um many aspects of storytelling that are always a kind of a remix um i'm uh my theoretical orientation i always hesitate to throw out that word in real life anybody who has a theoretical orientation you know you better hold on to your hats anyway my theoretical orientation is very much shaped by um by uh, mikhail bakhtin and um and uh the notions of intertextuality that uh, he did not coin but uh, kristeva coined in his sort of um inspired by his his views um Bakhtin uh, is my favorite literary theorist, um, and one of the things that you get from reading Bakhtin is you get the notion that um, language utterances, uh, be it the, the the words and phrases that we say in speech to one another, the very words that I'm saying right now, um, or if you think about language as some kind of uh, forms of communication or expression that include storytelling that include the writing of novels that include the creation of dialogue uh include the creation of characters who you know transmit dialogue um we what what we're always doing is we're always uttering the utterances that we've heard the utterances of others in a kind of very unique and very one-of-a-kind time and place and situation that make them altogether old and at the same time altogether new and so when you um, see the character of Fox, for instance, Fox, Fox, <laughs> for instance, in uh, Wilds and Fox, the F-A-W-K-E-S, but I think you, by now, you probably already have read the book since I've warded away the, um, those afraid of spoilers. Um, but when you see the character of Fox on tvtropes.org, um, this website where in a wiki style people... Um, identify the tropes that are uh, are are there um by the way the uh the idea of a wiki is really interesting to think about in Bakhtinian terms but let me not go into that um but the 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 tropes that are there in in this comic um are kind of outlined and so at tvtropes.org on the page for the characters in Wild's End you see that fox you know there's a description of 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 him as a character and he is here are the tropes he is the alcoholic Right, he is the crying wolf. He is the cunning like a fox. He is the hunter trapper. Right, and probably a little bit more interesting and enlightening is like character like like uh, Slipaway, who is the you know the navy character uh, as they emphasize the navy is just like the army on a boat. Uh, the the sort of reticent dog who is the um, you know kind of the old dog but but the sort of heroic laconic figure who knows the right thing to do. Um, 
who really ought to be listened to, um, who's sort of the, um, you know, the, the, the guide, the leader, uh, the, uh, quiet hero sort of thing. And so he's got all these tropes, the old soldier, the nerves of steel, the retired badass, pardon my language, the stoic, right? And so, uh, the tropes are all sort of outlined. And, uh, it's an interesting webpage to look at. They also have a page uh, just for the book itself and the tropes that are in there. And, um, it's an interesting website to look at to, to see how a broader, uh, reading public is identifying the things that I think are, you, you might think of them as story regularities. Uh, not every science fiction story, for instance, is going to have an alien invasion. But man, are alien invasions, uh, you know, resplendent in, uh, science fiction stories, right? Um, or not every, uh, uh, alien invasion story is going to have a death ray. But boy, do they show up often. And that's really what a trope is. And I think uh, to have a Bakhtinian perspective on tropes is to understand that um, tropes are old and new. That there's nothing, I mean, you know, we know what plagiarism is, but it's not plagiarism. We're we're constantly borrowing and stealing and reappropriating and, um, you know, um, remixing the things that... uh, that are in our in our cultural pool of of available resources. It's the only way that we can be intelligible to each other um, is to retell the old. But to re- but every retelling in a in a moment in a place in a in a particular configuration in a particular constellation of other pieces that are retold make something new and fresh. And I think Wild's End is you know very much a mashup of past influences. Uh, like I said. Like uh, Nick Bridwell pointed out, it's Wind of the Willows and it's War of the Worlds. There's a whole lot of, you know, um, Orson Welles. Um, <laughs> I kept thinking when I was reading Volume 2 that this is Orwellian. Uh, by Orwellian, I mean Orson well- Wellesian. Uh, but uh, there, there's, um, you know, there's all kinds of, of, of very familiar tropes um, that are reanimated, uh, you know, given a new life in a sense. Um, part of it by being anthropomorphized, even though the, the animal figures and what they represent themselves are playing on other tropes. And part of it by, um, uh, you know, the new elements that are thrown together in this. Uh, volume 2 um, uh, features a couple of new characters that are introduced. And I think those characters are really interesting. And, and I'll finally get to what I think is an interesting um, aspect of the book that I want to talk about, which is that uh, in in this series, um, there is this, I love it when creators do this. You know, any creators that are out there listening, when you do this stuff, I want you to know it's appreciated. Um, and what I'm talking about is the extras that are in the back of the issues. Uh, at going as far back as, as Watchmen, when I read Watchmen, the first time I read it, I just wanted to read comics. I didn't want to read a seven-page article. So I read the comics, and then I said, this was great, I, and I, I haven't gotten enough. And to be able to go back and to say, hey, I haven't, gotten, this is, I haven't gotten enough, but here's a whole lot, is just fun. I love the back matter. I'm a back matter junkie. Uh, I can't say that I always read all of it, but I always appreciate that it's there. Um, and so there's this really great back matter um, in... Uh, in uh, uh, Wild's End, uh, at the at the end of every chapter, um, a lot of that material is by Nick Abnett, um, and I think that the um, 
the back matter demonstrates some stuff that is actually also going on in the in the work itself, especially in the dialogue, in terms of the different registers of language. Now, one of the things about Wild's End that's very distinctive is that you know that Abnett is British, you can tell. Otherwise, you wouldn't write characters with each with their own kind of specific um, uh, uh, linguistic registers that reveal a whole lot about who they are as characters. Um, and some of them more than others, and the markedness of their speech, and by markedness I mean how much it seems to deviate from what we might think of as the range of standard um, English or even standard British English, um, uh, it varies with the characters, and and you know nobody really speaks standard English, stand, whether it's British English or or American English or whatever. You know, there's no true speakers of American uh, uh, of standard English, and uh, and and but but the amount to which you infuse their speech with um, elements of uh, vernacular or elements of dialect um, are you know are part an important part of the characterization process. Um, uh, I I was reading Brian Michael Bendis's um writing pictures and drawing words is that the name of his book anyway one of those and he re- repeated something that I've heard a lot um from writers who say that you know realistic dialogue isn't the same as real dialogue if you just transcribe the things that people say you'll find that most of it is not very interesting to to put into a comic or a story because most of it is um uh like this podcast, if it were transcribed, um, full of false starts and, and um, uh, you know, narcissistic, uh, <laughs> egocentric, uh, random things and name checking and ums and all this stuff. And it's it just uh, not to the point, you know, and you can't do that in a comic. You've got to get to the point. And moreover, uh, you know, usually you cannot fully reflect all dialects in language. Um, you're always, as a as a novelist or as a writer or as a dialogue creator, as a, as a script writer, you're always being choosy about what extent some amount of vernacular or um, let's call it um, variance in the speech that um, you're including just enough to do the characterization without detracting from the readability. That's the trick, right? And so you're not looking for real dialogue. You're looking for uh, some semblance of reality uh, that does enough for characterization. It's actually not unlike what I was talking about yesterday with Chris Somney and, um, and uh, Jesse Ham's insights about how you deal with lighting or how you really deal with art. Um, the amount of abstractness uh, or, or the amount of reality um, vis-a-vis what you're trying to do in storytelling. So um, in, uh, in Wild's End, you have characters who, um, who... Here's Fox, for instance. Here you go. High Top Woods. It's here somewhere. Gives us a sec to get me bearings. I don't even know if I'm reading that well, right? And so Fox, because he is this sort of eccentric, right, has more of this eccentric speech to some extent. Um, Have a look. Not you, Alf, you know. Why not, Foxy? You know, there's like these characters who are, you know, a little bit more... uh, uh, belonging to representative of this country setting, uh, all that comes out, right? Um, versus the soldiers who themselves have, or the, the sort of authority characters from, uh, from the government who have themselves these um, mannerisms of speech that um, reflect who they're supposed to be. 
um, the, the sort of curtness at times. Uh, or the squirrel character, the really uh, obnoxious uh, <laughs> government uh, bureaucrat uh, sort of um, ruining everything, holding holding everything up because of his own insecurities, um, has these verbal tics that you see uh, Abnet employing to create the characterization. Um, National security, Upton! I don't know how many times, you know, he's... he's <laughs> Colbert has him almost thrusting forward his um, narrow chest and uh, almost his his midsection in in the body language as he says that, and uh, the the language itself, the language language, um, is uh, you know this presenting forth of of national security, Upton, you know, of like uh, of titles he's using to try to lend authority to um, to reinforce the uh the rules the the you know the 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 air of authority that he's trying to maintain um i probably should have thought about what i was saying on some of this before i actually said it um what but i think what's to me very very interesting in this book is how the 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 language and let's say the the dialect of really all of the characters um, those who have some kind of eccentric forms of speech and those who don't um, are are just really um, carefully, uh, thoughtfully employed to add to the to the very you know I think just uh, really expertly done you know Dan Abnett knows what he's doing um, characterizations of these characters who are in some sense tropes you know uh, a mix of tropes. And yet, who are utterly original in this particular combination, in this particular chemistry, in this part, in these particular din- dynamics of characters? And of course, along the plot line, you see the the usual thing where you take this big crowd of people and you've established who they are as characters, and then you split them up in different ways. Um, Fox and Alfie go off in this way, and then um, you know, Cornfelt is over here with. Uh, 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 this character and then these two new science science fiction writers, you know, are divided in these ways, and it's all you know, it's all that's all part of the master plotting work, you know, which characters are going to wind up with which in order to spark the kind of chemistry we need to advance this part of of the story, um, and it's great, it's it's uh, really well done. Um, the journalist, um, the grizzled soldier, the um, you know, miserly government authority figure, the um, the real government authority figure, the um, naive, the knife, um, knife. I don't know how you say that word. Uh, you know, all of them uh, are in this careful combination. And I think what I want to say ultimately uh, about Wild Zen is that I, I, you know, you don't. I wonder how much Dan Abnett, you know maps out who is going where and why or what elements of what characters are going to be put with what elements of what characters i don't know if that's something he sits there and and draws out writes out you know goes back and forth with colbert about or whoever is probably lanning in another work um they they write together all the time uh or if he does this very much in his in his intuition is this all sort of stuff that happens in the gray matter of his imagination as he's writing i don't know uh i don't know dan abnett (laughs) that well i don't get to watch his process um but i do know that i think that his action of creation um which involves okay so what I'm trying to say, let me put it this way. What he does with language is very, I think, parallel 
to what he does with uh, story elements. And in fact, I would go on to say what any of us do with language is very parallel to what we do with story elements. Namely, is that we have this wide resource, you know, we've hung around enough. Maybe we've hung around with a lot of fiction. Maybe we've hung around with a lot of different kinds of people, whatever. We've hung around enough to know, to be at least, um, at least roughly familiar with different dialects, different vernaculars, different registers of language. And those all swim in our head in this kind of, um, in this kind of, a pool that we can more or less access. And what we end up doing in our everyday speech and in our everyday comprehension of, of speech is that we um, draw from this pool, this you know huge, vast pool of understandings about language, dialect, you know, uh, what register, what they mean, what they index or indicate, what they show. And we draw from this wide pool and we reproduce them when, every time that we speak. Um, and I think uh, what what Abnett does, what Abnett and Colbert do, is they really have this pool of dialect um, of of these characters, but they also have this pool of, you know, um, this is what a little kid is like. This is what these are different things a soldier might be like. These are different things that a journalist might be after, and they recombine them, um, and it comes out in this, um, you know, creative generative act of speech making or of storytelling of story making um and in this case you know i don't know not being british or from the the british countryside i don't know how quote-unquote authentic this language is you know i i think that's you know ultimately i think this isn't about whether quote-unquote authentic language uh is present so much as this is a rendition it's a certain performance of an authentic or a localized language um, and, but just because, you know, it's only a performance or only a rendition doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider its importance, right? It's these performances and renditions that form our imaginative understanding of what a small English countryside town is, right? And the same could be said of what is an alien, <laughs> right? It, all the sci-fi stories that our two authors in the story have written, do they create uh, certain possibilities of what is an alien, which is something, of course, the characters ruminate about themselves. Um, do they create uh, the possibilities of what an alien is here for, what an alien looks like, what aliens would do if they show, showed up in our world? Um, and all of that affects our readings of literature of stories and and our understandings of people around the world and so you read a story like wild zen and you know if you're like me a chinese american who grew up in california this is a world apart and yet you come to care about identify with and get a sense of the world from um from abnett's writing from the language of the characters from the storytelling from the reemployment of different tropes that um make you care and boy, do you care, because this is a fun comic, isn't it? It's just, um, it really is enjoyable. Um, what may not be enjoyable is my long disquisition on uh, language, vernacular, <laughs> and storytelling tropes and elements. Um, I, I realized that probably what I should have done is pulled out all of the examples from the comic a little bit more carefully before I launched into this. But I'm going to release it to the world, and it will be what it will be. Uh, maybe dying on the vine, maybe it will inspire you to um, read it with a, a different uh, a different set of questions. Um, all right. 
This has been a, a talk about Wild Zen, the Enemy Within. I like the book. Um, I rarely talk about books I don't like. That hasn't been really the pattern here. Um, tonight, I am going to talk about another book I like, which is Ben Hackey's Little Robot from First Second. Um, but uh, thank you for joining. Uh, I hope that you um, get some enjoyment out of this. If you do, let me know. Um, if there's some barrier to you getting enjoyment out of this, i.e., talk too long, talk too much, talk too vaguely. Um, let me know and send me an email, some feedback. I appreciate it. Appreciate knowing you're out there. Okay. Um, keep reading. <laughs>